Our text this morning is verse 17 to 20. We'll get to it momentarily. Have you noticed that Americans love emotions? Especially anger, it seems, these days. We're a very emotional culture. It seems that no one gets a hearing unless they're ranting and raving about something, unless they're crying or showing some extreme form of emotion. As a culture, we are less and less truly educated and more and more driven by our feelings. In some circles, nay, in many circles, education, intellect, deep thinking are looked down upon. Readers are ridiculed and scholars are mocked. And the church, for the most part, is the frog cooked in this kettle. And yet, we are made in God's image. Hmm. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. We've been given a brain for a reason. It's not a coincidence that it is the most complicated organ in the human body. And this God, who commanded us to love him with all of our minds, has revealed himself using words. Lots of them. The King James Version contains 783,137 words. Thinking deeply and correctly then is central to our faith. And as you know, the Bible is a deep, deep book and it can be very challenging. There are many things in the Bible difficult to understand. Peter even said this about Paul's writings. There are no pictures in our Bible, except there are lots of word pictures. No pictures in my Bible that has 1,749 pages. The old adage related to seminary training comes to mind. A person goes to seminary because they know that they do not have all the answers. It turns out they don't even know the right questions. Our passage today falls into this category. Our passage today, the longer I think on it, the longer I meditate on it, the deeper it becomes. Today's passage is a watershed passage. It is one of those passages where in the moment you think this might be the most important passage so far in the book of Matthew. It is a passage that shows us how to think and how not to think. How to think about Jesus Christ in relationship to the Old Testament and the Old Testament in relationship to following Christ. In seminary, we would call this the issues of continuity and discontinuity. How are the two Testaments related and how are they unrelated? It involves the whole issue of progressive revelation. How do we use the law and the gospel? These are deep, deep waters indeed. In these few passage, in these few verses, this passage today will give us insight into true greatness in God's eyes. Our world is enamored with greatness. We're going to see today what true greatness looks like in the eyes of God, and it's going to show us today as well, and begin to show us what kind of righteousness, what degree of righteousness, what depth of righteousness is possessed and practiced by those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. I would think those two things are pretty important to you. 
I would hope those two things are pretty relevant to you. What is greatness in God's eyes and what kind of righteousness is possessed and practiced by those who will go into the kingdom of heaven? Let's read the text. Verses 17 to 20 of Matthew 5. Jesus now begins the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Through verse 16 was the introduction. Now the body of this great, great sermon. And he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The big picture is we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is for believers, for disciples or followers of Christ. And the stress of this sermon, the theme of this sermon is a true righteousness practiced by disciples as we wait for the kingdom to come. The Sermon on the Mount does not describe kingdom conditions. They are still yet future. This sermon is not just relevant to Jewish Christians of the first century. And this sermon is not a way of personal salvation and is not a way of societal salvation. Rather, salvation by grace through faith is assumed as Jesus goes into the Sermon on the Mount. He is addressing those who are poor in spirit, who mourn their sin and have an inner desire for righteousness. He's addressing those who are pure in heart by the grace of God and will see God. He's addressing those who are peacemakers and are therefore called sons of God. Salvation by grace through faith is assumed in his listeners here who are disciples. The question is now then, how do we live? How do we live as disciples as we wait for the kingdom? If you need a theological category for the Sermon on the Mount, theologically you need to think of it as a sermon on sanctification, not justification. You need to think of the Sermon on the Mount like Romans 6 to 8 or Romans 12 to 15, not Romans 3 to 5. This is a sermon about sanctification. Now, granted, at the end of it, as unbelievers gather to his voice, as he went up on the hillside, he will turn it into evangelism, and he will offer an invitation. But the, the thrust of the sermon and the meat of the sermon is geared toward the sanctification of believers. Now, we cannot answer the question of how a Christian is to live. We can't answer the question of how a disciple is to follow Christ without considering the role of the law in our lives. We cannot understand what God wants from us without understanding that his law is still relevant and still has a bearing on our lives as disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount will do this. It will give us this kind of understanding. The focus here then is on living out your Christian ethic in a world that opposes your Christian ethics. Uh, Living out your Christian faith in a world that opposes your Christ. Now remember, as Jesus spoke these words of the Sermon on the Mount, none of the New Testament even existed. 
He hadn't died on a cross and risen from the dead yet. He's teaching Jewish followers and he's using and expounding upon the Hebrew Bible, the Bible of his day. I don't know why this keeps sputtering. There's something you can do up there. We would all appreciate it. (laughs) What was complete, given the fact that the New Testament did not exist, what was complete was the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament. A better name for it would be an Older Testament. I'm speaking of Genesis to Malachi, what's known as the Torah, the instruction, the teaching of God. And what Jesus calls here the law and the prophets. That was shorthand for Genesis to Malachi, for the Hebrew Bible. In other places, it'll be called the law and the Psalms and the prophets. Paul referred to it this way. He called it the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3. And Paul there is talking about the Old Testament, those sacred writings that can lead you to salvation. So oftentimes in the church, there's a mindset that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. That's false. There's a mindset that God is angry in the Old Testament and he's loving in the New Testament. That's false. There's grace throughout and there's law throughout. The key is understanding which is which and how to use them. These are sacred writings then. The question becomes, how would Jesus, this Messiah who's now come on the scene, this new king, the true king who has shown up, how would he view his Jewish Hebrew Bible? How would he use it? Would he ignore it like last week's newspaper, thinking something better has come along? Or would he discard it like an old eight-track tape player or an old analog cassette? Oh, there's something better and newer, and and we can set this aside. It's all obsolete. It no longer is relevant. Would that be his mindset as he came forward to Israel? Or would he love it, live it, explain it, and apply it as the living word of God? And that's exactly how he would do. What is your view, then, of the Older Testament? How do you view Genesis to Malachi? Do you view it as somewhat irrelevant Do you see most of it as obsolete? Do you ever consider that we should follow the commands of the Old Testament? And if so, which ones and how and when and why? Well, as Jesus begins the body of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to answer these questions for those who would follow him. So let's turn our attention now to our text. I want to expound it and we'll give you some doctrines and some application from it. So we begin in verse 17. With a prohibition. It is a negative command. It's the only command in this passage. It is a command dealing with our thought life. Do not think. Don't consider that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't ponder that. Don't think that. Don't conclude that. Jesus is saying that would be the wrong way to think. That would be a wrong conclusion. Again, the law... Or the prophets, law and the prophets here is a reference to the Old Testament. Not just commandments per se, but the whole thing. And Jesus here is anticipating objections, especially of his opponents, the Pharisees. As he's going to begin to expound upon the law and the prophets, as he's going to take commandments from the word of God and and drill them down deep into the heart of his disciples... The wrong conclusion by the scribes and Pharisees will be that he's come to abolish it, come to set it aside, 
come to ignore it even. And he is telling them on the front end, anticipating where their minds might go, that that is not why he has come. Even the language here is profound. Do not think that I came. He has a sense of who he is, where he came from, where he is, and what he is to accomplish. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. This is messianic language. This is self-awareness of the Christ, the one who has come from heaven and is now on earth to reveal God to man. So we first hear this prohibition. He did not come to destroy the Old Testament. He did not come to set aside the Old Testament. He did not come to abolish it. The reason we should not think this way is the rest of verse 17. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, to complete. I have come to bring it forward, to bring it into reality, to accomplish its promises, prophecies, and typological fulfillments. I am the accomplisher of all of these words of God. What he's telling them here in verse 17 is that he has come to go deeper into it, not to tear it down or to tear it apart. He has come to fulfill it, not to destroy it. And then verse 18 is a solemn explanation. He's given the prohibition and the reason for the prohibition, and now the solemn explanation. He says, for truly, I say to you, it's the Hebrew word, amen. It's used 31 times in Matthew Jesus will use this when he is ready to get very, very serious about something. Truly, I say to you, this is sober, this is solemn, this is serious. He is doubling down now on verse 17. He He is drilling this down into their minds. Until heaven and earth pass away. When is that? That is at the end of the millennial kingdom. After the tribulation, after the second coming of Christ, after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. God will recreate. He says, until this current heaven and this earth pass away and are no more, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, from the Old Testament, until all of it is accomplished. By the way, This is a tremendous proof text for the need for a millennial kingdom. A literal fulfillment of the kingdom promises. Because this text is telling us that until heaven and earth pass away, that every single promise and prediction in the law will be accomplished. Well, let's break this down a little further. The old King James saith, not one jot or tittle. What in the world does this mean? It's important. Our translation, New American Standard here says, not the smallest letter or stroke. Well, the smallest letter is yod in Hebrew. In the Greek here, it's iota, which is also the smallest letter in Greek. And it's even a word that we use for something that's tiny, right? T-tiny. So here we have a reference to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like our apostrophe. That's the size of a yod, an apostrophe in the English language. And then this old word tittle from the King James or stroke. What we're talking about here is the difference 
between the letter P and the letter R. Get that difference in your mind. Between a P, a capital P, and a capital R, that's a tittle. (laughs) That's the smallest little stroke of a pen. This would be in our vernacular, the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. What Jesus is saying here in verse 18 is not the smallest, tiniest letter of the alphabet or the tiniest stroke of the tiniest letter shall pass away until everything in that Old Testament is accomplished. And it will be accomplished in, through, and by Jesus Christ. This is tremendous. And then verses 19 and 20 are what I would call the shocking implication So we've had the prohibition, verse 17, the reason for the prohibition in 17b, the solemn explanation in 18, and now the shocking implication, verses 19 and 20. Whoever then annuls, sets aside, ignores one of the least, one of the tiniest of these commandments and teaches others to do the same teaches others to grade the commandments and consider some as important and some as irrelevant or some as not important or some that we can ignore completely. This person shall be called the least, the worst, the most insignificant in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches in that order, whoever keeps and teaches, whoever is a disciple maker, he shall be called great, Large, significant, important in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven refers to the millennial kingdom. When Christ is on the earth reigning. Verse 20. For I say to you. That unless your righteousness. Substitutes sanctification. He's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's not talking about justification here. He's talking about a lifestyle of righteousness. Unless your lifestyle of righteousness goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, which, by the way, isn't very hard. Unless it goes beyond these hypocrites and these whitewashed tombs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that, that verse 20 would have, would have floored his audience. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, scribes were the legal scholars of the Old Testament. They weren't just people copying it. They were the scholars of their day. Some of them were Pharisees. Not all of them were Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separatists. They were the strict interpreters of the law of God and those who added to the law to protect it. And the people regarded them as the righteous ones, the holy ones, the holy men. These were the men of God who everybody kind of bowed to and were in fear of. And now Jesus here fearlessly, boldly comes out in his first major sermon in this area. And he says that their righteousness is not even enough to get them into heaven. He says to his audience that the scribes and Pharisees are headed for hell. Though they are moral, though they are religious, though they have memorized the Bible, though they know more Bible than everybody else, they are on their way to hell because their righteousness has no root. Their righteousness is not true righteousness. And so he says, you must surpass it. And then he's going to go on in the sermon to show them what he means. We'll get to that in future days. But these two verses are a shocking implication. A shocking implication of these truths. Look at verse 19. What he's doing in verse 19 in this first category of those who annul and teach others is he's describing the scribes and Pharisees. 
That's their category. That's what they do. They are hypocrites. And then the second category, those who keep and teach, he's describing a true disciple. A true disciple demonstrates a real righteousness that surpasses the showy sham of these scholars and separatists, these religionists, these moralists. A true disciple has a righteousness that comes from within because they're pure in heart and they mourn their sin and they desire and hunger after righteousness. And so it easily surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So let me read the text one more time with a bit of paraphrase and then we'll get to our doctrines and our application. Do not consider for a moment that I came to destroy the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy the Old Testament, but to fulfill the Old Testament. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the tiniest letter of the alphabet or the tiniest pen stroke shall pass away from the Old Testament until every single word of it is accomplished. Whoever then decides in their own wisdom to set one of these aside and teach others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, in other words, whoever makes disciples, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, disciple, that unless your practical righteousness, your sanctification surpasses that of these moralists and these religionists, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is exactly what Hebrews twelve fourteen says. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Well, let's move on then to some doctrine and application of this passage. I have three uh, sound doctrines, I hope, three key doctrines that I want to set before you today and seek to apply them to our lives. Doctrine number one, Jesus Christ fulfills the entire Old Testament. I want you to just sit and think about that for a moment. That is a profound statement that one person and one person alone could fulfill Genesis to Malachi, this breadth and depth of requirement. It's an astounding statement. It is an audacious statement. Jesus the Christ fulfills and accomplishes the entire Old Testament. He came to this earth in part to accomplish every last pen stroke of every last letter of every last word. He came to dot every I and to cross every T. That's from his own mouth. Now, how would he do that? Three ways, primarily. He fulfilled the Old Testament, number one, by perfect obedience to it. Now, remember, everything he did is in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees who claimed to be obeying it, but they really weren't. He did. He obeyed the Old Testament as it was meant to be obeyed. Secondly, he fulfilled it by his accurate teaching of it. Again, versus the scribes and Pharisees. He would accurately expound and apply the word of God to the people of God. He loved his Hebrew Bible. He lived in his Hebrew Bible and he knew his Hebrew Bible. And he would bring it forth to his people in a way they have never heard it before. We get to the end of this sermon, which is just an explication of the Old Testament. And they say, we have never heard anyone speak with such authority. People are blown away by his accurate teaching. But then the third and final way that he fulfills the entire Old Testament 
and probably the most important, is that he fulfilled prophecies and types that point to him. He fulfills prophecies and types that point to him. Now, I want you to just listen for a moment and consider this list with me of what all he has fulfilled just thus far in the gospel of Matthew. All right? Here we are in chapter 5. And the list is overwhelming of the fulfillment and the truth of verse 17. We saw right out of the gate that he fulfills the right genealogy. He is of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is of David. We saw that in that amazing genealogy of chapter 1 that works its way down through the tribe of Judah, through Joseph and Mary, that this son of David would come and be the king of Israel. He has the right genealogy. He came to fulfill, not abolish we saw already in Matthew that he fulfilled Isaiah seven fourteen in a virgin conception. He was born in Bethlehem to fulfill Micah five two. He was called out of Egypt to fulfill typology of Hosea eleven one. He brought he brings hope amidst tragedy to fulfill Jeremiah thirty one fifteen. He was a despised Nazarene to fulfill Isaiah fifty three and others. He was preceded by his forerunner who himself fulfilled Isaiah forty. He was 40 days in the wilderness to fulfill typology of Israel, 40 years in wilderness wanderings. He had a job relocation to Capernaum to fulfill Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. He had a healing ministry to fulfill messianic qualifications in Isaiah 35. And that's just Matthew just to this point. He has come to fulfill. Oh, don't ever doubt it. There are many, many other prophecies and types that he fulfilled in his first coming. To the letter. He must be pierced. No bones broken. On and on and on they go. And you can trust with all of your heart that he will fulfill all of the rest, either in the second coming or the millennial kingdom. He will fulfill them all down to the smallest pin stroke. And he will fulfill it all because it all points to him. All of it. All of it. In one way or another points to him. And so he can say, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Believer, here's some application for you this morning. As you read the Old Testament, not if you read the Old Testament, right? As you read your Older Testament... Look for Jesus where he can legitimately be found. Now, this is an important distinction, and you've got to be a student of the whole Bible. The more you know the Bible, the, no, the more you'll know where he can legitimately be, be found versus I'm forcing him into a text. He is not found in every verse, but he is rather found throughout the entire scope of the Old Testament. That is a key distinction you need to make as you read the old testament look for jesus where he is legitimately found do not force him into every verse but look for him throughout genesis to malachi here's an illustration it would be like searching for gold nuggets in a mountain stream you're not going to find a gold nugget under every single rock but you will find gold nuggets throughout the entire stream 
This is how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Your best aid in this, your best tool in this is to use the New Testament to find Jesus in the Old Testament. It's called progressive revelation. And the writers of the New Testament are constantly weaving into their writings, either by way of allusions or direct quotes, the Old Testament. And so we get our kind of our understanding of how to do that from them and build upon that and look for that. So that's what I would say is the application for believers today. Jesus came to fulfill Genesis to Malachi, so look for him and rejoice in him and find him there. Now, for those who are unbelievers, even those who I would call seekers this morning, perhaps someone is here who's uh, considering Christianity. Uh, You're considering the truths of the gospel. You haven't made a, a faith commitment to Christ, and you know it. You're on the outside, and you're looking in, and that's wonderful. We're glad you're here, and, and if you're seeking, that's because God's drawing you. Well, here's, a, here's an assignment for you. If, if you're truly seeking to know the truth, your assignment this afternoon is to Google this phrase, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. Just go Google that phrase, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. One website I found listed 68 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming. 68 with all of the scriptures there, Old and New Testament. If you're a seeker here and you want to know the truth, I challenge you to go through that list, to find such data from the Word of God and deal honestly with the evidence Deal honestly with the text. How could this be possible that words written hundreds of years before he ever existed could be fulfilled perfectly in this one person, Jesus the Christ? Ask God to open your eyes and open your mind to the truth. I think this is an area that we, are, we, we often neglect. Just the area of fulfilled prophecy is overwhelming. It is a support to our faith. It builds us up in the faith. But if you're a seeker, this should blow you away and it should cause you to say, I have not seriously considered the claims of Christianity. All right, doctrine number two. Doctrine number two. Jesus believed the Old Testament was without error. Jesus believed that his Hebrew Bible was inerrant, infallible, authoritative and sufficient. This is so important. So often we talk about being like Jesus and we have some mindset of what that looks like, what that means. But this is an area that rarely enters into our mind. To be like Jesus means that I'm going to believe every word of the Old Testament is inspired and true. Are you with me? If I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to view the Hebrew Bible the exact same way he viewed it. As the inspired word of God, without error, without error, every word trustworthy. We might say it this way, believe the words of Jesus about the words of the Old Testament. And I find this in verse 18. I mean, if verse 18 doesn't argue for inerrancy of the Old Testament, what does? If Jesus doesn't showing us here and demonstrating here with this language, that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The, 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 the implication of that is he is saying every word is inspired by God. Every word is true and trustworthy. You can count your life on this. Believe the words of Jesus then about the words of God. Paul did. 
the verse that we use that we love so much about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. You know that verse? Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He is referring to Genesis to Malachi and then by implication any new scripture that would happen after that. But when Paul writes those, he has in mind the same book that Jesus has in mind. Oh, glory to God. The Old Testament is the Bible of Jesus. It is the Bible of the apostles. This is what they grew up on. It's what they heard every Sabbath in synagogue. It's what they studied. It's what they read. It's what they loved. How can we be any different? If Jesus believed the Old Testament was without error, and if I want to be like Jesus, then I will do the same. Because, listen, we are not smarter than Jesus. We are not smarter than Jesus. If he believed in a literal Adam and Eve, then I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. If he believed in a literal worldwide flood, then I believe in one. If he believed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Lot's wife turning to salt, or Jonah swallowed by a fish, then so do I, and so should you. You're not smarter than Jesus. If you want to be like Christ, believe the Old Testament is without error. Doctrine number three. Jesus modeled obeying and teaching God's commands as they were intended. This is verses 19 and 20. Jesus modeled obeying and teaching God's commands as they were intended. Certainly, he is speaking of himself here in verse 19, is he not? Who is the greatest of the great? Well, Jesus, who, whoever keeps and teaches, he shall be called great. Well, well, that's you, Jesus. And then, to a lesser degree, all of your disciples. Jesus modeled obeying and teaching God's commands as they were intended. The application is clear. Disciple of Christ, go and do likewise. You see, verse 19, he is not only rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. He definitely is. But he's also looking forward to the Great Commission, which will be the climax of this gospel, right? He is looking forward to the Great Commission... And he is showing us here that teaching others to keep God's commands is part of discipleship and disciple making. In other words, it's not enough to just keep them. We must keep them and teach them. We must teach others also to keep them or we're not making disciples and we're not being faithful disciples ourselves. We're not talking about everybody being a missionary and everybody being a preacher or everybody being a Sunday school teacher. We're talking about what it looks like to be a disciple. You keep and teach. And it's in that order. That's the crucial order. That's the hard order, isn't it? That's the difficult order. Keep and teach. Because if we don't keep and teach, then we become hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees. This group, these groups, they would first grade the commandments. That's why they asked Jesus that day what, what was the most important. Because this is what they did all the time. They sat around grading and listing out the commandments from most important to least important. And as they did that, they would then pick and choose the ones that they would follow and teach and keep. And then they, they would pick and choose the ones that they would relax. The ones that they would loose or annul or set aside. or eh, We're not so worried about that one. We'll, we'll emphasize this one instead. Jesus comes along and he rejects that entire approach. He rejects that entire approach of grading the word of God and the commands of God into certain categories 
Because he says in some way, in some way, all of it points to me. And so in some way, all of it is relevant. So, so I'm just going to be a Bible reader of the Psalms and Proverbs and, and Genesis and I don't read Leviticus. Because Jesus is saying in some way Leviticus is relevant because it points to me. And I fulfill it. And because I fulfill all of it, all of it then matters. And so disciples keep and teach using discernment and wisdom and progressive revelation in the light of the New Testament. I mean, we can go a step further. Even what Jesus and the gospel has made obsolete is still relevant. It's still relevant. Here's what I mean. We don't sacrifice animals, but reading Leviticus points me to the Lamb of God. Reading Leviticus calls me to holiness. And reading Leviticus reminds me of the amazing privilege I have in the priesthood of all believers. So, yes, those sacrificial system is, is obsolete. It's been fulfilled. It's been set aside for the church and in the church age. But that doesn't mean I can skip over Leviticus. It is highly relevant. Here's another. We don't follow the strict food laws of the Old Covenant for the Jewish people. But the food laws remind me that I am set apart from sin. The food laws remind me not to fill my mind with garbage. The food laws remind me that food matters to God. Am I bound by the food laws? No. But does food matter? And can I get myself in trouble with food? Yes. This is part of discipleship. Here's another. We don't kill the enemies of God like Joshua in the conquest of the land. But Joshua reminds me that Jesus is my commander-in-chief and that I must be killing sin in my life by the Spirit of Christ who comes not to take sides but to take over. Joshua reminds me of this as I read that great narrative. We are not under the condemnation of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But nine out of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament as God's standard for us, New Testament, Christ-believing Christians. Nine out of ten of the ten commandments are repeated in our New Testament, making up the law of Christ, if you will, the law of liberty, a law that we are now enabled by the Spirit of God to follow and love and obey And even that tenth, the Sabbath, even that one is fulfilled in Christ, right? Who is our Sabbath rest in the gospel. In other words, it's all relevant because it all points to Christ in the Christian life in some way. We might sum it all up this way then. Salvation has always been by God's sovereign and free grace through faith in the promises of God. Specifically, a promised Savior Messiah. Salvation has never been by works. It has never been by self-effort and human righteousness, ever. It has always been by God's free grace through faith and the promises of God. And this salvation will always result in true righteousness in a world that is opposed to God until the kingdom comes. And in that sense, there is nothing new in the New Testament. He did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Let's pray. 
Lord, we worship you today as the great fulfiller of all of these prophecies and types and so many yet to come. And just as you have fulfilled them all, or some of them in your first coming, to the letter, we can trust that you will fulfill the rest in same fashion. We thank you for this. This is yet another aspect of your glorious character, of your marvelous splendor, of why we should love and adore and worship you. Lord, it's also a reminder to us today to, to be students of the whole Bible and to uh, feed ourselves on all the Word of God and to seek to keep it by your grace and with your help and to seek to teach it to others. Just as Paul said, his, his hands were clean of the blood of his listeners because he had given them the whole counsel of God. Lord, may we be a church like that. May we be Christians like that. May our statement of faith and our doctrinal statement be robust and reflective of the whole counsel of God. And we pray that we would be uh, this kind of disciple-making Christian as we wait for the kingdom to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.